0: You may be seated. Well, it's a a pleasure to join you all in worship this morning. I think it's been eight or 12 weeks. I know it's on the four-week elder rotation, because Matthew was leading with me last time I was here, which is such a blessing. Um, But thank you for for having me and my family. I bring you greetings from Redeemer Presbyterian Church and from Heritage Christian Academy, where I serve as the dean of students there. Coming in and, and doing a one-off sermon um, is always an interesting thing to to try and figure out where in the scriptures um, the Lord would have me to preach from. And so, uh, as I, I thought and prayed about it, I felt like perhaps uh, on the beginning uh, of Advent, um, we're not that quite there yet, uh, but maybe it would be good to to do a passage look at a passage from the Gospels um, that that clearly showed what it was like for the people who were waiting for the Messiah to come uh, and wondering who this Messiah would be. And so that um, brings us to this passage, Matthew 7, that we'll be looking at today. I, I ask for your grace and mercy. I'm running, I have running, not running a fever. I have a little bit of a cold, and so my voice, I already have a monotone and low voice, and then give me a cold. And my voice is... Um, so if I lull your babies to sleep, um, you're welcome. Um, yeah. I love a good mystery and, and always have. Uh, as a kid, I would read the Boxcar Children books, Encyclopedia Brown, anything like that that would allow me to, to kind of wonder uh, and, and try and solve a case. Uh, and I went through a period of time where my favorite TV shows were all... Um, mysteries. You know, crime shows or, or something like that. And during that period, one of my favorites was the show called Psych. I don't know if many of you are familiar with it. If you are, I'm not a major fan, so don't try and like slide a line past me, and I won't get it. I won't even know. Um, but I did like the show, uh, and I and I enjoyed it. And one thing they were really good at is creating a mini mystery in every episode, kind of like the Boxer Children books or something like that, um, so that you would have clues that would, would lead you to preemptively try and guess who the culprit was. If you've ever seen a show like this, you know where you, it comes down to like two or three guys and you're like, I, I feel like it's probably one of these and then you kind of think it's one person uh, and then when they reveal the real criminal, uh, it's, it's someone else, right? They, they've, they've done it so well that it makes sense in the end and at the same time, you were kind of thinking maybe it was someone else. Psych is excellent at that. More often than not, I'm hanging on to the end when I'm watching a show like that, trying to figure out the big reveal. And when things start to make sense, you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Here in our passage today, we have the people and the Decapolis experiencing something similar. The, the people that Jesus is interacting with have this moment, this aha moment where they're like, oh my gosh, I think I know who this man is. And if you've ever read through the book of Mark, you may have noticed that that Mark writes in such a way. And the gospel writers do this, but I feel like Mark especially does this, where he's writing in such a way where he's he's not quite giving you everything. Uh, And he's showing how the people must have really felt when the ministry of Jesus started, when they witnessed him walking around and teaching and performing miracles and doing all these things. And these people who, for hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation after generation, have been asking themselves the question, who is the Messiah who was prophesied long ago? And they've had those moments. Could it be this guy? Maybe. Nope, it wasn't. What about this guy? Maybe. Nope, it wasn't. Right? and So they've gone through that process, and it seems as if the ones who you would expect to know the most about the answer to this question so often seem to know the least, at least in the life of Jesus. It's the Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders in the synagogues and the religious institutions. They spent their whole lives pouring over the Word of God, memorizing in large quantities the Scriptures and reciting it daily, and they seem to know the least about who Jesus is. You have the disciples, the ones who are walking around with Jesus, doing ministry with Jesus for a while now, traveling all over the land. They'd just gone on a 120-mile journey with Jesus all over Galilee. Gone on secret missions for him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And yet when he speaks, they're still confused and not quite sure of, of who he is. And we're told by Mark that their hearts are hardened And they cannot understand, at least at the point of this text that we're about to read. But the ordinary, the broken, the sick, the demon-possessed, the poor, the Gentiles who are not a part of Israel, it's them who seem to see a small glimpse of who Jesus is, perhaps more so than the others. And this event in Mark 7 is one of the many recorded events in Mark that give us a fuller answer to the question, this kind of revealing and revealing and revealing that's happened. And perhaps it's one of my my favorite passages in Mark, leading up until the point of of the moment where Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter finally gets it. He's the Christ. Sort of gets it. Because he doesn't want the Christ to do what the Christ has come to do, which is to suffer and die. But this leads it up to this question is in the background of all of this. Who is this Jesus guy? And it's an important question for us to ask and to answer if we're to know and proclaim our faith as Christians. Let's turn our, our hearts and minds to the text. This is Mark 7, 31 through 37, the word of the Lord. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephatha." that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let us pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word today, that your spirit would work through it, that it would work through the very word of God Do something in our hearts to cause us to marvel, to cause us to be astonished like the people. Lord, that it would allow us to see the salvation that we have in Christ and to marvel at it, to be amazed at it, Lord, how great it is. For those of us who don't know you, Lord, would it allow us to see that you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the one who has come to save us, and that we need you for our salvation. And would it empower us, equip us for this life, that we might be people who walk around like the people here, proclaiming, you have done all things well. You, Jesus, are our salvation. It's in Christ's name, they pray all these things. Amen. So Christ has, has just left this region uh, called Tyre, which is, is right on the Mediterranean Sea. And he's gone north up to this area called Sidon. Uh, and then he's circled all the way around the Sea of Galilee uh, to this area called the Decapolis. It's a 120-mile journey from, from Tyre up to Sidon all the way back down to the Decapolis. Minimum 120 miles. He's done all that to end up on the Gentile side of the Jordan River. And it's here in this region of the Decapolis that there's this man who's both deaf and mute, who's brought to him. He doesn't just come to him of his own accord, he's brought to him. In the text it says that he has a speech impediment, and we can tell by the reaction of the crowd uh, his ability to speak clear at the end of the healing, that his speech issue must have been quite severe. That's why people often say he was mute. So the crowds bring this deaf, mute man to Jesus, and they ask Jesus to lay a hand on him. It says they beg him to heal him. Beg him. And Christ, he takes the man aside, away from the crowds, to where they're alone. It's there that he heals the man. He sticks his fingers in his ears. He spits on his fingers and he wets the man's tongue. And he looks up, in, up into heaven and he commands the ears and the tongue, be opened, And they are. The man's ears are unstopped and sound comes in. The man's tongue is freed. It's loosed and speech comes out. He can hear and he can speak. For the first time in a while, if not ever. And he does. Christ commands those around who witness the change to keep silent, but they can't hold it in. And in fact, the more he commands them, the more excited they get. They're overwhelmed with amazement at what had just happened. It's an incredible thing. So much so that they proclaim, this guy, Jesus, he does everything well. He causes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Again, it's this question that's in the back of their minds and should be in the back of our minds. Who is Jesus. What does this passage tell us about Jesus that might inform what we think of Jesus? We're going to look at three parts of what we see Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, doing in this short scene. You have them, I think, in your bulletin there. Christ communicates. Second, Christ commands. And third, Christ confirms. So Christ communicates. Jesus here communicates to the man as he is. What do I mean by this? Jesus speaks to the man in a way that is incredibly personable, incredibly sensitive, incredibly compassionate. And this isn't new. This isn't something that that we see here for the first time in the book of Mark uh, and the other Gospels. Jesus often speaks to people as they are. When Jesus is in areas that are heavily populated by Jews, he speaks in Aramaic to the people. That would have been the most prominent tongue. We know this because Mark records his words, and then he provides a translation. We see that a little bit here in this text, right? Ephatha, which means be open, using the Aramaic, and then he translated it into Greek. Other times, it can be assumed that Christ is speaking the local Greek, because there is no translation provided. As many would have been bilingual in that day, and the Greek language would have been able to communicate to a wider audience. But here, Christ is communicating to a man who is unable to hear and unable to speak. And he speaks to him through a different form of communication, right? Through, through personal attention, through touch, through actions. Let's look at the text. In verse 33, Mark writes, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephatha, that is, be opened. So Jesus pulls the man aside from the crowd to where they're alone. You can imagine this man, again, he was brought to Jesus. He might have been scared, confused, maybe excited, maybe had an idea of what was to happen he's alone with him. We don't know for sure what's going through his mind, but you can imagine with me being pulled aside like that, not knowing what is going to happen. And Christ pulls him aside to focus in on him, to give him that individual, undivided attention, something this man had probably not had that often, if not ever. And then Christ begins to heal him. And how? This is where it gets weird. We can say that. He pokes him in the ears, spits on his fingers, and wets the man's tongue. How weird is that? When I was a kid, there was a saying called a wet willy. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. This is not necessarily that, but in some ways, I feel like it's probably grosser. When I first read this, and I thought, I love this passage, how, how do you explain this from the pulpit in reverence? I don't know if in some ways... It just is what it is. It's not like Jesus had to use his spit to heal this man, right? We've seen plenty of times before where Jesus just speaks the very words of God, and the world obeys. This seems to be his preferred form of action. But here he pokes, he spits, he wipes. I remember thinking, as a kid, this was so silly, like awesome, amazing that Jesus would do something like this. As an adult, you're like, ooh, Please know, I would rather not have that happen. But I think what's happening here is that Christ was doing this not, definitely not out of necessity. We know that. because He doesn't do this anywhere else. He's not doing it to prove a point or because he has like a flair for the dramatic, like Harry Houdini or David Copperfield or someone like that. No, he's doing it out of love and compassion, I think. This man could not have heard it if Jesus had spoken. He could not have understood if Christ simply prayed and proclaimed healing over him. It would have happened. He would have understood the results, but he wouldn't have understood the process. He would have had no idea what Jesus was about to do. No communication here from him to Jesus through words. Not until he cries out, Be open. But Jesus spoke his language, he took his fingers. And he simulated the opening of his ears by plunging them into his ear canal. He spit on his fingers and touched the man's tongue, simultaneously symbolizing the re-wetting of his tongue and the unbinding of his speech. He set it free. And then he didn't just command the ears to be opened. He looks up into heaven, showing the man where his true power come from, not from touch or from spit, but from God Almighty, and it's then that he lets out this loud, that's where it says sigh. It's a loud groan. And he commands the ears in a loud groan be opened. And they were. This man, for the first time in his life, if not a while, was hearing and he was hearing the words of the Messiah crying out be opened. The words which set him free to hear and to speak clearly. Jesus here communicates to the man in a way that is so compassionate, so personal, in a way that the man could perceive and understand it. He took him aside, one-on-one. He touched him. He acted it out for him. And ultimately, he healed him. And yet still, even when Christ spoke in ways that were meant to communicate uniquely to a deaf and to a mute man, Christ still spoke. When the Son of God speaks, when God speaks, things happen, which brings us to the second point, Christ's commands. When Christ commands, his commands demand response. What do I mean by this? Look at Scripture, right? How is it that God created the world? In the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, we see that God speaks, and the world and all creation comes into being, right? He says, let there be light, and it was so. He says, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. God speaks, and it happens. It should be of no surprise to us then that the Son of God, that that Jesus, God incarnate, is no different. And in Mark, Jesus throughout speaks. And the lepers are cured. He speaks and the sick are made well. He speaks and the demons flee. He, he speaks and the bread and fish are multiplied. He speaks and the storm is calmed. It's his speech, like the very word of God in creation, that causes the broken things of this world to be made right. In a very real sense, he has commanded the created world to be as it once was before Adam and Eve first sinned. To use his language, In the book of Revelation of John, Jesus is making all things new and right again by his speech. And yet his speech seems to function in a variety of ways in the Gospel of Mark, depending on its object. The sea and the winds, sure, they obey him. The demons listen to him. Sickness leaves bodies. The dead are even risen. When it comes to those who seem well, far too often his commands are not heard. And this section of Mark is part of this this larger section that shows the inability of those around Jesus to truly hear and understand what he is saying and doing. Earlier on in this series of events that leads us to where we're at now, Jesus had blessed five loaves of bread and two fish, and he multiplied it. So over 5,000 people were fed. And yet the disciples, it says, they're confused by this, and they did not want to un- understand what was happening before them. Then he's confronted by the Pharisees and scribes, and he speaks to them, yet they don't understand. After all, he said, they leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Then again, he teaches the crowds and the disciples, and the disciples are still left without understanding. Just this constant series of events of people not understanding what he's saying or who he is. And all of this is set up by Jesus' earlier statement, "He who has ears to hear, let him hear." And it ultimately fulfills this condemning quote that he makes from Isaiah chapter six, verses 9 through 10, where Jesus quotes the prophet and says, "They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." You see, the created world around would hear. They understand, and they submit to the words of Christ. For the people around. Far too often Jesus speaks, and the hearts of the people are left confused and hardened. Especially, it seems, with those most familiar with the word of God, and those closest to the man of Christ himself. Yet here, Jesus speaks to two ears which cannot hear, and he cries out, "Ephatha!" Be opened, and the ears respond. The ears are opened. The ears hear clearly. Jesus speaks to a tongue which cannot speak, and he says, "Ephatha." Be opened, and the tongue responds. The mouth is open. The man speaks. Jesus speaks, and miracles happen. He speaks, and creation obeys his very word. It's only the very command of Christ that can open the ears of the deaf. It's only the very words of Christ that can soften the heart of those who are hardened by sin and a life in this cursed world. It's only the very words of Christ that can loosen a man's tongue and bring him to know and profess true faith and repentance. And I would argue that it's only the very words of Christ today that can take a sinner such as I and remove the scales from his eyes and unblock his ears, and take his heart of stone and give him a new heart that is willing and able to live for him. It's only the words of God that can make us truly alive in a world that is trying to do everything to convince us that we aren't really dead, as Scripture says that we are. As First Peter says, it is the words of God that call us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. His commands demand response, and here in the text, the ears and tongue of the deaf and mute man respond accordingly jesus says be opened and the ears and tongue obey he hears and speaks clearly which brings us to our last point christ confirms christ confirms their messianic expectations this is perhaps the greatest section in this Heart of Mark. As I stated earlier, Mark is essentially posing this question through his storytelling. Who is this Jesus? And he's he's building up to this scene. And the further the narrative goes, the closer we're getting to this answer. And here at the end of chapter seven, we finally have a shadow of an answer from the people. The crowds proclaim of Jesus. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf. Hear and the mute speak. So what are they saying? That Jesus heals people and he does a good job at it? I think that, that's obvious from these events, right? We we can easily say that, but I'd like to propose that they're saying a whole lot more than that. I grew up just north of Arkansas in southern Missouri. Uh, I was about as landlocked as anyone could could probably ever be. Same as as here in, in the Missouri Kansas border in Kansas City. Uh, when we went on vacations as kids, we typically only went northwest, about as far as Idaho, a, and really no further. There was one time when I was young that we went to San Francisco, but I was young. And one time when I was even younger, like a toddler, that we went to the East Coast. That's it. So I say all that. To say I never. As far as like bodies of water go, I'd never really experienced the ocean. All I'd experienced were chlorinated pools, farm ponds, creeks, dirty, muddy rivers, lakes. Like that's, that's pretty much it. This was the norm. We didn't even have white water. In southern Missouri, there's lots uh, of rivers, but they're pretty slow. That was my day-to-day experience but I'd heard of the ocean. Some of you may be like I was. Like I'd I'd heard of this thing called the ocean. I knew about it. I'd read about it in books. People had talked about it. I'd seen it on TV and in movies. Heard about in school. And there was every once in a while this lucky kid from my town who would go on a family vacation and they would get to go see the ocean, right? And they would tell you about how amazing it was. But it wasn't until my senior year of high school when I went on this road trip with a few friends of mine and our youth pastor to Panama City Beach, Florida. And when we got there, we went straight to the ocean. And some of you know what I'm about to say I experienced. You've, you've experienced something similar to myself. When I saw the ocean for the first time, I was in complete awe, blown away, amazed. I mean, it was Far bigger than I could have ever imagined, right? Far more massive, far more loud, far more beautiful, far more amazing than anything I could have ever perceived. But if you had taken me to a really big lake, like the Great Lakes, I'd never seen those before, and told me we were at the ocean before I went to the ocean, I probably would have thought, this must be the ocean, based on the things that I'd heard about it it's similar, but it's not the same, right? Similar in that you can't see the other side at points. Similar in that you have wakes coming in. Similar, but it's not the same. I thought I knew what the ocean was like, but I hadn't experienced it. Now imagine if 18-year-old me on the beach was freaking out proclaiming to all the locals around me how amazing this was. Like, I'm running around, and I'm talking about how huge it is, how phenomenal it is. I'm freaking out because I see jellyfish for the first time, and I realize what they are. I see dolphins for the first time. I see a real surfer, and I can't believe that there are real things such as surfers. There's a kid using a boogie board, and it's not just as a target for a diving board. Could you imagine if I was running around freaking out like that, just yelling at the top of my lungs, and the locals would have been like, yeah, it's, my house is right there. It's the ocean. Like, it's, this is normal, right? I feel like I say that because that's kind of how we are when it comes to miracles of Jesus. We're like the locals. We're a little desensitized to how amazing these things actually are. We expect them from Jesus. For many of us, we grew up hearing about them over and over and over again in Sunday school, and vacation Bible school, in church on Sunday morning from the pulpit, and we just expect these things. We know he can perform them. But for the people here in this story, they were a lot like me at the ocean for the first time. See, this event, they'd heard about it. Maybe they'd heard about it from from murmurings, heard about it from other people who had seen him heal someone. But but more than that, they'd heard about it from the scriptures. They'd heard about it passed down from generation to generation, knowing that someone was going to come who was able to do these things. They'd heard about it. But they hadn't seen it. They knew of it. But again, no experience whatsoever yet. When Mark reads this event, He connects it directly to a Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 35, 5-6. through You see, these were likely, again, Jewish people living in a Gentile region. And we can assume this because of the fact that Jesus speaks in Aramaic to them and then translates it into Greek. The Greek word here for had a speech impediment, it's only used one other time in the whole Bible. And it's actually in a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. A Greek translation of Isaiah. Because Isaiah was originally written in Hebrew. But in the Greek Septuagint, you have the same word used in Isaiah 35, 6. Where Isaiah writes of the tongue of the mute singing. And the Greek text of Isaiah was perhaps, scholars think, more prominent in Jewish synagogues in the first century than the Hebrew text was just more widely available. So they would have been familiar with it, likely. They would have clung to the messianic promises in it, awaiting the one who had come to fulfill them and rescue them. And Mark is flagging this for his audience, who likely would have been familiar with this key passage in Isaiah. If you go on, you see the words of the people as they blatantly disobey Jesus out of pure excitement, proclaiming, He has done all things well. even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, which rings in tune with Isaiah 35, which says in verses five through six, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The people aren't just proclaiming the events that occurred because they are amazing. They are proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. They've seen the ocean and they know what it is, right? They've seen the Messiah. They've seen these things from Isaiah 35 happening in their very midst. And they recognize it. They check their list. Does he open the eyes of the blind to see? Check. Does he free the legs of the lame to leap? Check. Does he cause the deaf to hear? Check. Does he unlock the tongue of the mute to speak? Check. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's going to make all things new. He's the one who's going to heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, and stop the ears of the deaf. And i the tongue of the mute that he might sing for joy. And they're seeing it in their very midst. And For them, this is mind-blowing. And they are flipping out. And that's how Mark records it. They can't hold it in. They're proclaiming, he is here. Isn't this amazing? This is what we've heard about. This is what we've been waiting for. The Messiah is here. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus has confirmed their messianic expectations. Now, perhaps the craziest part of this text is that despite the people seeing such a clear connection between Jesus and the promised Messiah, they still don't truly understand who he is or what he's come to do. They know a part of him, but not the whole, which is perhaps one reason why he charged them to remain silent. And despite having probably a, a observed this, these events, the disciples themselves, as Mark records in the next chapter of his gospel, namely Peter, they still need some time before their deafness will be removed and they will finally hear and understand Christ. Before their tongues will be unbound and they will confess the true nature of Jesus. See, where Jesus was slowly answering the question, who is this man through his words and actions, it would still take a, another cycle in the book of Mark, of similar events for the disciples to begin to really grasp the true answer to this question. Now, the benefit you and I have is that we live in the future. We know the answer, some of us to a greater degree than others. And it's fascinating, if you go back and you read Isaiah 35, the passage that that hangs as the backdrop of this account, you see this beautiful picture uh, of God's healing work, the healing work of the Messiah, and the hope that God's people have to look forward to in him it begins like this the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with singing with joy and singing the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon they shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. In the fullness of time, as the deserts and dry lands that are out, our hearts begin to rejoice and blossom as we see and behold the glory of God in Christ, it's then that we have the full picture, the full understanding of who Jesus is, that we are called to finally speak, right? The disciples had this moment, albeit later on in the timeline of Scripture. But here now, many of us sit here fully aware of who Christ is and what he's come to do. So these commands from Isaiah 35, they're for us. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Serve and love others. Encourage them. Help them in times of need and lift them out of sorrow and despair and give them hope. How? Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Where they were called to be silent, we are called to offer hope, to offer freely the salvation that is found in the justice and grace and mercy of God through the one who has come. To let them know repeatedly, just like Jesus did with his miracles and preaching, both how spiritually broken they are, dead in their sins and trespasses, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. And also how Jesus has already earned for them true and everlasting healing and restoration. For the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The one who has opened the eyes of the blind, who has unstopped the ears of the deaf, who has caused the lame man to leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute to sing for joy. To offer him to a lost, and dying world around us. I think this text calls us to live out of that hope, to put ourselves in the shoes of the folks of the Decapolis who were waiting for a savior, to go back for a moment to the life that we had prior to understanding these truths, if there ever was a time, and then to feel again the excitement of knowing that he is here, that he has come, to know without a doubt that he genuinely, compassionately, full-heartedly loves you, Loves me. Despite our warts, despite our brokenness, despite our messed up, sick lives, despite all our sin, rebellion, and anger, and frustration, he loves us. to The point of death on the cross, that our sins might be forgiven. And he's given that love to us here in his word to proclaim. Just as he commanded the ears and the mouth, he opened, and they were. Christ Jesus would cry out on the cross, It is finished. And it was. Sin and death have been defeated. So take heart and remember how Christ has communicated to you. Christ has commanded sin and death to be defeated, Christ has completed all of his duties as Messiah and Savior. And we are free. And that is the message that you get to take with you if you believe it. To your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to your family members, to those who are lost and dying in their sin. My encouragement as we end is to bask in the salvation of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus who has come to make all things new and to proclaim with the folks of the Decapolis, Jesus has done all things well. To proclaim with the prophet Isaiah, be strong, fear not. He will come and save you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ left the heavens, took on flesh, taking the form of a servant, taking the likeness of man, that he might live and minister among his people, fulfilling all the messianic prophecies, condemning sin, living righteously, and ultimately dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in that good news today, to be encouraged and strengthened by it, and to be those who would take it to the world around us so that others may hear and believe, that those who are deaf would be able to hear, that those who are spiritually mute would be able to speak. Would you allow us to do that in Christ? It's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen.